Alrighty, hello everybody and welcome back. Um, today we have a very, a very special guest uh, on the podcast. Um, is Professor Tim Benning. Uh, he's an astronomer at the University of Sydney. Um, he's known particularly well for some of his studies in stellar oscillations, which I think he'll tell us a little bit about today, which is great. Um, he's actually got, in 2007, he had an, an asteroid, um, which was named in his honor. Is that right, Professor? It was named by a colleague of mine who found it for me, which was very kind of him to do that. That's awesome. So asteroid 231470 Benning. That's so cool. I think it's pretty small. I don't even know how big it is, but there you go. Is it is it circulating like anywhere significant or where it were? I think it's just one of the asteroids in the main asteroid in the belt. Asteroid belt. Yeah, I've never seen it. Pretty that's, faint. That's so cool though. Like even though it's just a name in like an arbitrary naming system. Astronomers yeah. don't get to name very many things. If you discover a galaxy or a star, it doesn't get you don't get to name it. But oh, asteroids yeah. is was the one thing where you're allowed to propose a name. Right. So that the, the like stars and planets they require a more like formal definition based off. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so I guess the starting obviously I'm joined also by um, my co-host Aaron. Um, uh, I know Professor Betting from um, first year university. He was my lecturer for. Um, mechanics and electromagnetism uh, but Aaron is um, doing some study in exercise physiology um, so he's kind of the neutral physics student for today yeah I don't have a huge background in this sort of astronomy field so there's <laughs> lots of good physics and physiology how the body works yeah, yeah sure. it's all it all comes down to physics at yeah, the end of the day everything's so, physics when you come down to it yeah. <laughs> it's true though so I think the first question um I'd like to ask is just how you got into physics or just in science in general. Were you always a science kid or maybe you could just tell us about your background a little bit growing up? And Yeah, I always loved astronomy in particular when I was growing up in high school. I went to high school in Sydney and um, I remember watching Carl Sagan on TV in the Cosmos series, yeah, which was fantastic, and getting books. This is obviously the days before the internet was invented. <laughs> um, so yeah, I love science. I came to uni and did science. I liked physics and maths and I ended up studying physics and that's how I got into astronomy. And was astronomy kind of just like a logical deduction from your, from like a, a viewpoint of getting a job at the end of the day, or was it more like a passion directed decision? It was the second. I didn't really think much about getting a job. Obviously, I would have loved to become a university lecturer, and I ended up becoming one. Right. But I didn't know that I would be. I was pretty relaxed about it, really. I, I often tell students when they're coming to open information days, stuff like that, just do what you enjoy. You're not going to be unemployed. You'll have a great life. So just mm. do what you like and. If you get lucky, you'll end up getting a job. Yeah. You know? I think that's the biggest fear for a lot of like people going into science. And I never particularly fe feared it. But now when I'm having to like specialize in majors for my Bachelor of Science, I'm like, oh, do I do physics and math? Do I do I do like a job? Like, I'm not sure what to do. And, and it's probably that job thing coming in. But I think doing what you love is probably always the best way is that what you found? I think so and the things you like are generally the things you do best at anyway True. and we have students who go through they do a PhD in astronomy and then they go off and get jobs in data science I've had several PhD students in the last few years have done that yeah. um, so a few of them will end up going into academia but many people who do PhDs in research end up getting jobs in the real world mm. um, so in a way it's just part of the journey enjoy it while you can yeah true just apply those skills that you learn because we learn a lot of like in physics especially in second year physics we're doing a lot more computational stuff which is you know dealing with data and and that can be translated into like numerous fields you know i remember i, I read a story about some guy who started up a huge business i don't even i don't think it was apple but one of those massive companies and when he was looking to hire people, he didn't hire business people. He hired physicists and mathematicians just because of their competency in dealing with problem solving. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, I've heard exactly the same thing. And some of my friends went into that. One went into finance. Um, a couple, actually. The smartest guy I ever knew, he was so clever. He was a German guy. He did a PhD in theoretical physics. And then he ended up doing finance. And he now makes lots of money in New York. He's got a nice apartment. So he's done pretty well. Exactly. So you just apply that kind of knowledge, I guess. And then, obviously, we, we spoke about having a career in science. And from your perspective, I know it's a weird question because I think I know your answer because you're a scientist. But is a career in science ultimately worth it at the end of the day? Do you find it a, a satisfying job? For, you know? 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I love it because uh, the good thing about working at a university is you get to do research and teaching. Yeah. So part of my job is teaching. I lectured you and I, yeah. I love teaching. I really enjoy it. And the good thing about teaching is that it's always fresh and new. Um, but then research, by definition, is also new because if it's not new, it's not research. So doing research, uh, finding new stuff, using new data, new experiments, new telescopes is always exciting. Yeah. And then you join them together because you have students. So a lot of my time is spent supervising students who are doing projects, undergraduate, some of them, for even from first year up through to fourth year, and then PhD students as well. I wouldn't say it's all great. Like there's a lot of admin involved. Like right today, I'm writing, for example, exam questions, which is not the most exciting part of my job, but mm. someone's got to do it. And then there's things like committees and stuff that has to be done. But every job has that sort of stuff. And I think mm. my job, I, I love it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with the whole like teaching side of thing. I think if I ever went into a research type role that I would love to do like some sort of teaching on the side, you feel like you're imparting knowledge onto the next kind of generation and you see like people satisfied when they learn something and it's just like that's that intrinsic kind of joy of passing on information. To Yeah, the light bulb coming on is a great feeling. But you also learn a huge amount. You, I mean, it's often said you don't really understand something until you have to teach it. And if you've ever done any tutoring, or some of your listeners might have done tutoring of students in high school, you learn by tutoring so much. So yeah, I think it'd be cool to talk about um, what your what your right now. I don't know if you're necessarily working on it now, but you're known to have um, led a, a discovery um, that red giants oscillate in mixed modes. I don't know what that means, but it comes down to, you know, stellar oscillations. Would you talk to us a little bit about what that research is and what it involves? Sure. Um, so a star is a big ball of gas held together by gravity. Uh, the sun obviously is an example and stars come in different shapes and sizes. And being a big ball of gas held together by gravity, it can oscillate or pulsate in what we call standing waves. So these are sound waves, just like the sound waves inside a musical instrument. So for example, I've got a couple of demos here. I've got a bottle, an empty beer bottle. If I blow across the top, you hear that noise. Now you can't see the bottle, but you could tell by listening about how big the bottle is, right? So now let me take a different bottle that I'll pick up and blow into that one. Do you hear how low that note is? Mm. I'll try again. Hear how low that note is? So you can tell without even seeing it, this is a much bigger bottle. In fact, this is a one and a half liter Riesling bottle. Yeah, it's it's got it had fifteen point four standard drinks in it, not anymore. Oh my goodness, it's empty now. Empty. So someone someone had a good night, I think, Professor. But you know from instruments, for example, if you play an instrument like a bassoon, big instrument, yeah. low note. Low frequency, yeah. Flute smaller, higher note. So the first thing is the frequency that something oscillates in tells you about its size. Right. And it's also the same with stars. So a star like the sun um, oscillates, pulsates in these standing waves with periods of about five minutes. So that is to say it takes about five minutes for the sun to get a little bit bigger and smaller during this oscillation mm. pattern. Um, but it's actually much more complicated than that because the sun oscillates simultaneously in many different ways. We call them modes. And so modes of oscillation are, for example, if you play a musical instrument and you blow too hard, you can suddenly find the note changing, even though you don't move your fingers. So people who play the trumpet do that all the time, or they know that they can play different notes by blowing a different... They know that they can play different notes by blowing harder and softer, and those mm. different modes have different frequencies. I've got another demonstration of that. I've got here a plastic tube. It's like from a kid's birthday party. And it's just a little plastic hose that I can swirl around my head and make a noise. So you can hear three different notes then, all from the same tube. I wasn't changing the length of the tube or anything. The only thing I was changing was how hard the air was blowing past it because I was swinging it around my head a bit faster or a bit slower. So each of those notes you heard was a different standing wave, a different mode inside here. And each of them had their own frequency. And so there's a lot of information even from just that. Now, if you observe a star, of course, you can't hear stars mm. through the vacuum of space. What we do is we look at the light. So when a star does this pulsation, this oscillation, the star gets a little bit bigger and smaller, a little bit hotter and cooler, and the total light output changes. And so what we measure is the light coming from the star. It's actually a really boring measurement. We use data at the moment from space telescopes that NASA put up there for a completely different purpose, 
one called Kepler and one called TESS. And these space missions measure the brightnesses of stars over and over again, every few minutes, for weeks, months, or even years on end. And we use those data and analyze the variations to tell what the star is doing. Wow. That's, that's incredible. It's crazy just how much we can like figure out from these. It's, it's quite amazing to think about. Like, Obviously, we can talk about the progression of science from you know, not even knowing that there was a star system out there thinking that we were at the center of the universe which is the previous interpretation and now being able to look at oscillations and pulses in you know the gravitational contraction and expansion of, of these kind of stars which is just incredible and i have just a question about um about about stars and this is i think i know the answer but for the, for the general um population of listener i don't think this is really touched on enough how can we distinguish between how would we actually go about measuring between a small star? You measure, you, you say that the, the modes differ between the size of the of, of the stars, but how do we account for you know the distances away, the the uncertainty with like obviously well, we're talking about huge distances. How do we account for you know you could have a really small um, patch of brightness, but it's so far away that it could actually be massive. How do we accurately measure that kind of distance relation? Yeah, that's a good question. So distances to stars is actually hard. It's hard to measure distances to stars. And the best way to do it is to measure the parallax, which is to say that if you look at a star that's relatively nearby and you look at it again six months later, it will have appeared to move very, very slightly relative to background stars because the Earth has moved in its orbit from one side of the sun to the other. And that's called parallax. You can imitate it yourself. If you basically hold your finger in front of your face, and close one eye and then close the other eye, you can see your finger moving backwards and forwards from side to side relative to things that are further away. And so those measurements can be made and and there's been a beautiful mission from the Europeans called Gaia, which has been a space mission still going, which is doing this for billions of stars. So it's measuring the distances of billions of stars to incredible precision. But you ask about the measurements we make. So... The oscillations don't really get affected too much by moving the star further away. And it's just like if I was playing a trumpet and then I got further away from you, all that would happen was the note would be a bit quieter. But you'd the, still know it's a trumpet. You'd right. still know it was a trumpet. You'd still hear the notes. You'd hear the pitch, which is the frequency. Okay. So B flat, E flat, whatever. And you'd hear those notes the same. So moving a star further away from us doesn't really change what we can do, but it does change the signal to noise. That is to say, it changes how accurately we can measure it because the further away a star is, the fainter it appears, and we would need a bigger telescope to catch the light. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, I, I heard a story that when I was first getting into physics um, about the sun setting and how when we observe the sun, maybe going down in a sunset, it actually takes light approximately eight minutes to travel from the sun to us, to, to our to our eyesight from, from whatever particular direction um, or whatever angle that you're looking at the sun from. And um, this eight kind of eight minute period for the light to travel is um, the sun's actual position in the universe has changed in that period by, you know, not a drastic amount in comparison to the distances we're talking about, but it has changed. So the actual sunset that we're observing is a sunset that has happened previously essentially in time but we're seeing a consequence of this light coming from this ridiculous distance which i think is just amazing that we can be observing an image that has already occurred in in the universe previously yeah and that's true of course whenever you look out into space i mean if you look up at night and look at stars the average stars you can see with your eyes are many light years away yeah uh, even the closest star of the sun alpha centauri which is near the southern cross is four I think it's 4.2 light years away, which means the light we're seeing now. And many of the stars you see are hundreds of light years away. Mm. Uh, But of course, the universe takes a long time to change. So even in hundreds of years, not much happens. Um, Stars evolve on timescales of millions or hundreds of millions of years. Mm. So the universe takes normally a long time. There are a few exceptions. For example, stars blow up in supernovae sometimes. It'd be cool if that happened. That'd be awesome. Um, There hasn't been a, a good supernova in our galaxy since the telescope was invented. So the last one in our galaxy that was seen was seen by um, Kepler. Wow. Um, There was a supernova in the nearby galaxy in 1987. That is to say, we saw it in 1987. Uh, Obviously, it went off, I think, maybe 70,000 years earlier. Wow. 
And that was visible if you knew where to look, but it wasn't that spectacular because it was in a, a nearby galaxy, not in our own. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the photos, the Google image photos of supernova, these exploding galaxies. And, it, and it's quite an interesting concept. Um, I personally learned about it in a, um, in a small astronomy elective that I did where essentially you get, um, obviously we spoke about stellar oscillations and this fusing of, of hydrogen. I'm not sure if we touched on it, but essentially hydrogen, helium fusing in the core and obviously synthesizes heavier elements as we keep having these fusion reactions. And you get to a point where um, you've, I believe it's iron that you fuse in the core. Is that the, is that the limit? Iron is the heaviest element where you can still get energy out. Beyond that, you no longer get energy produced. And so the star no longer has an energy source. Yes, that's, that's it. Right. Yeah. So there's this ultimate limit to the energy source. And then your fusion reactions stop in the core. And if the star is, is massive enough, what, what will actually happen is because obviously the fusion reactions are producing this energy and this kind of outward radiating um, force. Um, and that actually counteracts the gravitational compression force so when this energy fusion stops, that outward hydrostatic force, I think it is, is that the right word? Yeah. It, um, stops, you get the complete effect of the gravitational pressure and that will compress all that matter into such a small area um, that you can actually have really violent ignitions which cause this kind of big out, outburst of energy. Is that, is that right, Professor? That's right, that? so that's what a supernova is. No, it only happens in stars much more massive than the sun. The sun will end its life much less violently. It will never get hot enough in the sun to reach that point. The pressure isn't high enough. Right. And so the sun will end life as essentially the core of the sun will be a white dwarf, yes. which is made mostly of carbon and oxygen, and it won't go any higher than that. But if the sun were 10 times more massive, then it would, and the carbon and oxygen would fuse into heavier and heavier elements till you get to iron. And then, as you say, there's no more energy. The, star, the core of the star collapses, and depending on how massive it is, it can either collapse into a neutron star, which is basically something about a few kilometers across oh, those neutrons. But if it's even more massive than that, there's nothing will stop it. And then you get a black hole. And that's how black holes are born. Well, that, that leads perfectly on to what I was gonna talk about next with you. Um, and I just, we spoke about like stellar oscillations and observing light. Now there's this idea of, um, of white holes, and I know that you've definitely heard about it and you can, tell us probably a little bit about them, but essentially to our viewers, just from the basic information that I've learned, black holes are, um, and Professor Benning can give you more detail on this, but black holes are essentially a point um, in space where the warping of, of space-time, now that's a whole nother concept, but essentially gravity is not a force, sorry to break it to you first year students or high school students, but gravity is not, it's not exactly a force. Gravity is actually a consequence of the bending and the warping of space-time. So mass actually distorts space uh, and consequently time because time and space are interrelated with each other. And black, the black hole is this point of kind of infinite warping where if light, any light that goes past a point called the event horizon of the black hole, it can't escape. It's caught in this infinite kind of a loop because of how warped space is around this particular point. Now, the thought is, where does the light go? Does it go out some other end, which is the white hole, the other end of a black hole? We haven't seen these, I don't think. What, what's your thoughts, Professor? I, I, I think you can't answer the question. So when something goes inside the event horizon of a black hole, it can never escape because it would need to be traveling faster than the speed of light, which nothing can do. So a black hole is a region of space-time where there's so much matter in such a small space that nothing, not even light, can escape. Now, I'm not, I don't know anything about these white holes of which you speak. Um, I've seen the movie Interstellar, and then yep. if you go inside a black hole, you end up in somebody's bedroom. I don't think that's true either. <laughs> Having said that, Interstellar was a pretty good movie, and the science advisor on Interstellar, Kip Thorne, in fact, wrote the textbook on general relativity and gravity, which I have on my shelf over there, and he got the Nobel Prize, or shared it, for developing the LIGO detector, which detected oh, gravitational okay, waves. Nice. Um, so, the, so the stuff in that movie, which I'm assuming most of your listeners have seen, where they go down to the surface of a planet near a black hole and time slows down, that's all true. That's time dilation in the presence of strong gravity. Um, but that whole thing of going into a black hole and surviving, that's as far as anyone knows, you went anywhere near a black hole, you can be ripped to shreds by yeah. the tidal forces long before you get to the event horizon. 
that's that's i think i read something once like as you approach the black hole there's a point where essentially half of your body assuming we if we assume like an ideal case where in like there's regions where you know half of your body can be in the black hole and half out you'll be half your body will be stretched so significantly that your entire body will literally be separated into pieces because it's the magnitude of the strength that we're talking about with these black holes so actually entering a black hole and people wonder why have we not been inside a black hole why don't we just throw a camera into a black hole and see where it ends up it's like this actual event horizon makes this kind of i don't know this barrier between actual you know holding any structure before you go in yeah so although you don't think of the event horizon as an actual physical thing it's just the point of no return as you approach the black hole uh, the gravity gets stronger and stronger but so does what's called the tidal force and the tidal force is because the gravity is changing so if your feet are closer to the black hole than your head is they will experience stronger gravity and you get ripped apart so tides happen here right if you were to get very close to the sun you would find tidal forces stretching you it's the same principle it's just that it's really strong near a, near a black hole because the gravity is so strong but there isn't a particular point in space where you would notice the event horizon it's just that as you get closer and closer the gravity gets stronger yeah but we also don't have any black holes in our vicinity to approach anyway the nearest black holes are thought to be uh, these exploded dead stars and of course you can't see a black hole right how do you see it well the answer is that if it happens to be orbited by another companion and many stars in the sky have companions binary stars are very common so if you have one star that's become supernova and turned into a black hole but there's still a companion nearby that companion's mass can be slowly sucked into the black hole and in doing so can be very very hot and emit x-rays and bright light and that's what astronomers can see yeah i I think i've seen there was an image going around on facebook of that like the first confirmation of the black hole and then you see that orange accretion disk which is where you talk about that matter from a from an accompanying binary star and that's an extreme case so that was in fact the center of a galaxy so that's what's called a supermassive black hole where the center of a galaxy has a a black hole with millions and millions of times the mass of the sun Uh, and that was imaged by very very powerful radio telescopes that accretion it's amazing to see this like orange accretion disk surrounding this huge spherical black mass and it's quite amazing like even to think about the calculation which was used in order to determine that there must be the supermassive black hole and to pinpoint the region where we should be looking because they realized that the rate at which the um, you know the planets and and stars were, were moving in this particular system it was being accelerated by some even when they added all the contributions of the visible kind of things that they could see there was still this ridiculously large unaccounted for mass so they concluded that central to the system must have been this supermassive black hole which was causing this kind of accelerate or previously unaccounted for rotation around this central kind of system is that is that the right idea yeah so there's there's a there's a thought to be a supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy not as massive as the ones we just talked about and in that case there are stars near the center of our galaxy that they can image over several years whizzing around in their elliptical orbits and you can tell from their orbits that there must be something very massive inside and that, that work was, in fact, awarded the Nobel Prize uh, either last year or the year before. Andrea Gez and Genhard Reins... Andrea Gez and Reinhard Genzel yeah. shared the Nobel Prize for that work. So that was imaging the stars orbiting the black hole at the center of our galaxy. But if you want to learn more about the, the supermassive black hole that we talked about before, there's a really good Veritasium video by Derek Muller. Yes. Some of your listeners have probably seen Veritasium on YouTube. And Derek Muller uh, actually did his PhD here in the yeah, School of Physics. Here, wasn't he? Yeah, so he did his PhD in physics here, and he makes amazing videos for people who are interested in physics. They are really good. I, yeah. I love them. So, Aaron, you found an interesting uh, fact about <laughs> Professor <laughs> Professor Bedding online. Yeah, it was a bit last minute for me to come to this interview, but with a quick Google search, I found that. Uh, you're a world champion ultimate frisbee player. Is that right? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I was a world champion, uh, but I used to play a lot of ultimate frisbee when I was a uni student. It's a great game, great team sport. A lot of you probably played it at school. And back then, uh, it was, wasn't was so hard to get into the Australian team. So I played in the Australian national team. I certainly wasn't a world champion. We didn't win the world championships, but we did play in the world championships, which were in Oslo. Um, so this was back in the day when the standards were a bit lower. And... Yeah. 
I wouldn't say anyone could get in, but there's no way I would have got into the Australian team these days. There's too many good players. It's pretty competitive now. It's really quite a prominent sport. Like, did you start at the one of the UCID societies when you came and signed up for that, or were you doing it previously before you even came to uni? Well, some of my uni friends were playing before there was such a society, so they just played at lunchtimes and on weekends. Really? Yeah. And so they essentially started Ultimate Frisbee in Sydney. And so out of that came clubs and societies, but that happened a bit later. Yeah, but it's a great game. It's a, it's a really good social sport as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is cool. I mean, yeah. I mean, to be competitive, I guess, you would have had to have found that you're half decent at playing the sport at some point or on a beach or something. Yeah, yeah well, when I was younger, I was a soccer goalie. So I liked diving uh, and catching stuff. So that was kind of my side of it. I wasn't a super fast sprinter, but I, I was good at diving and catching the disc in the end zone. Lots of good physics too, spinning the frisbee, angular momentum. Angular momentum. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. But like, there's this classical kind of um, stereotype that physicists are in, inherently uncoordinated. And I think that is probably, um, that idea is accentuated a little bit uh, far because I know a, a lot of um, very uh, successful people and, and even people working in science. I don't know too many um, proper scientists yet. I'm doing a lot of undergraduates, but we're not all uncoordinated. Professor Benning is a, is a perfect example of that. Ultimate Frisbee is a demanding game. It is. But I do have to say I've hung up my Frisbee boots. I don't play anymore. Okay. Good. He's, he's focusing on advancing science, which is what we want from him anyway. Don't worry about your Frisbee career. So I think the next little bit, we're coming up on, on half an hour, which is good. So we have a, we have a little bit more time. Um, but I'd just like to talk on, I know, um, obviously... Professor Benning is a is an astronomer, so he doesn't specialize in in quantum mechanics. And I know a lot of you listeners love to talk about quantum mechanics and entanglement and and the idea of parallel universes and stuff like that. Um, but I would still like to touch on this question, even for my own personal understanding. Um, I've always wanted to ask a physicist this, and it's um, we learned a lot about the uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics last year, which essentially says um, in any system when you're dealing with um, quantum particles and if you don't know quantum essentially just means um small very small i guess um when you're dealing with any kind of system there's a certain limit on the on uh, on the certainty which you can define the position and the momentum and also the energy state and the time transition um of a particular particle um in the in the defined system the classic classical example is a particle um, in a box and identifying its position in the box in space and time there's this inherent uncertainty um, with that, so I wanted to get your interpretation on the idea that does not, you know, the fundam- the fundamental limit of uncertainty in quantum mechanics suggests that there is something deeper going on. You know, our inability to define, to you know, definitively define a system in terms of these kind of variables, momentum, the position at one state, does that not implicitly kind of suggest that there's something deeper going on, or do you think that's just a consequence of where physics is at at the moment, and it might be advanced later on? Yeah, I would say, and I'm certainly not an expert in quantum mechanics, but I would say it's just the way that the world is. So if you, for example, talk about an electron, which is the fundamental particle, it acts like a wave. And therefore, because it acts like a wave, it's hard to tell exactly where it is. And if you try to measure exactly where it is, um, you'll find that you don't exactly know how fast it's going. So those two variables, its position and its momentum, are related in a sense that if you know one very accurately, you can't know the other very accurately. So there's a, it's in fact a Fourier relation. So anyone who's done anything on Fourier transforms, they're in two different domains, just like time and frequency. So that's just the way it is. It's not the only thing that's indeterminate. There's also the probability side of it, which is something that Einstein had a lot of trouble with. He famously said that he thought God does not play dice. And so, for example, if I... Um, if I have an atom of uranium sitting on the table, it will decay one day because that's what uranium does. It'll take a while, but there's no way of predicting when it will decay. Right? There's no way of looking inside the uranium atom and saying, right, it's ready to go, there it goes. You can have a bunch of them and I can tell you how many will be left in a day, in two days and three days, but I can't tell you which ones. So there's something inherently unpredictable about the quantum world. Mm. And as far as we know, that's just the way it is. All we can do is deal in terms of probabilities. And a lot of people don't like that and they're uncomfortable with it. But the theory is incredibly successful. It explains a lot of things. Yeah. And so you just have to put up with the fact that we, we just can't know everything. 
Mm. Yeah, I think I think Schrodinger said something like, I'm sorry for the part I had to play in quantum mechanics. But he formed, you know, the Schrodinger equation, which is essentially like the basis of all quantum mechanics, which is what I think it essentially describes like the probability distribution of finding a particle which exists in this superposition state of particle and wave. Is, is that the right idea with the, More with the wave less, function? Yeah, so Schrodinger's wave equation tells you what the wave function of a particle looks like, where the, what the probability is of finding it in a different, a certain place at a certain time. Mm. But Feynman famously once said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't, or something like that. Or maybe anyone who claims to understand quantum mechanics is lying. I don't remember the exact quote, but that's the idea. It's, it's just weird. That's yeah. just the way it is. Which is so, like, un, like non-physical, like... Physics is describing things we can see. It's a very, it's a very rational way. We, we were talking on the way in here about the inclined block um, physics problem because as you walk into the University of Sydney, there's the incline playing with the blocks on top. And I was speaking to Aaron about. Aaron said to me, "Isn't it obvious?" I was talking to him about you know the coefficient of static friction balancing you know the component of the gravitational force such that the block didn't move. And he's like, "Well, that's obvious. It's clear that the friction's balancing it." I'm like, I know, but physics just quantifies this. Yeah. It simplifies it, but then there's this whole realm of quantum mechanics which says that as much of a physical description you want to apply, that's not the case. And I think Einstein like hated that idea and he went out of his way to try to, you know, dispute Niels Bohr and stuff about it. He just couldn't deal with it. Are you can you do, are you happy with that as a physicist? <laughs> well, no, I'm not. There's a lot of things that I'm not satisfied with, but unfortunately that's how it is. I guess one, I mean, one way of thinking of it is human beings are quite good at understanding their everyday world. But if you go away from that, for example, if you go to very high speeds, you get the weird effects of special relativity, length contraction and time dilation and things like that. They're not noticeable in our everyday worlds. But, you know, if I would like to say if we ever found some weird insect that was used to flying at close to the speed of light, it would know somehow about relativity in the same way that a bear or a bird that catches a fish underwater knows about the refraction of light. Right? If you aim to catch a fish underwater, you're going to miss unless you allow for the fact that the light coming towards you has been bent. That's yes. called Snell's Law at the surface. And bears that. know that. Seagulls know that when they dive for fish. <laughs> they know where to, to aim. So in some sense, they know that. Our bats flying around using radar or sonar, I should say, they know about the Doppler effect and all sorts of stuff. Yes. They don't really know, of course, but it's built in. But we're not used to the very fast and we're not used to the very small. And that's why humans are not very good at intuiting this. There's plenty of things that are also, that you know, a typical physics student knows. But if you go and ask a person in the street, go up to someone in the street and give them a brick and a <laughs> tennis ball and say which one will hit the ground first, right? Try yourself. Just put a brick in one hand and a tennis ball in the other. It's almost impossible to believe that when you let them go, they'll hit the ground at the same time. Every physics student knows it. Galileo allegedly showed it by dropping cannonballs off the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I don't know if he really did. Mm -hmm. But it's not intuitive at all. Right. So even the simple physics is not intuitive. Yeah, I guess everything, if we describe what we now know about physics, even just with like there being a universe which is having this accelerated expansion by dark matter to someone back in the day who thought that we were at the center of the galaxy, the Earth was what we can see they'd be like that's completely non-intuitive but so now that we're having these advancements there's no reason to just conclude that we're wrong it's just simply a step in the history of where we are maybe we will get that you know unified field theory or whatever it is we're looking for that will help us kind of solve that yeah and who knows i mean i think einstein famously once said the amazing thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible and we have really no right to expect that we should be able to understand everything uh, you know, humans with our intellects, as great as they are, they're limited. Like a dog can't understand special relativity or even Newton's laws, right? A chimpanzee can't either. And yet humans, or at least some humans, can understand these incredibly amazing theories. But there must be things that our brains simply can't comprehend. Yeah. It would be amazing coincidence if our brains were good enough to understand everything there is to know about the physics of the universe. Yeah. And I'd love to touch on something just on that before. I would like to speak about special relativity a little bit in a minute, just because um, Professor Betting does teach a course, which I'm taking next semester, um, called Astrophysics and Special Relativity. So I'd love to talk about that. Everyone loves relativity, the idea of time dilation and you know someone shooting off in a rocket and then coming back, and well, a twin shooting off in a rocket, twin comes back and 
they're much older. Wait, no, the person on Earth is much older than the twin who comes back who was traveling at the speed of light in a rocket, but we'll talk about it. That'd be cool to hear um, how that works. But I just want to talk about that idea that, you know, we are ultimately limited by our brain and our maybe our, just our general complexion as human beings. Where do you stand on the idea of, of where religion comes into science and where, you know, we can say, we can kind of pinpoint a lot of the things that happen after the origin of, of time and people say that's, the, you know, the introduction of materialism into a previously immaterial universe. But how do you kind of account for that origin of time? We can make these logical, logical kind of deductions from that point onwards, cosmic background radiation, you know, distribution of matter, formation of galaxies. But where do you think religion comes into this idea of where ultimately these beings that are here existing, what, what do you think? Ah, uh, well, that's a, you put me on there. It's a huge question. You put me on the spot there. <laughs> well, the bottom line is I think that science and religion are pretty much separate. So there are religious, I'm not a religious person, but I have friends and colleagues in science who are, some of them, not many, um, but some. I see them as completely separate things. Science is about building evidence, building theories, trying to understand and explain the world honestly, without cheating, without shortcuts, without saying, oh, well, I don't understand this, so it must be God. Mm. So the Big Bang is a great example. What was before the Big Bang? We don't know. And anyone who says they know is bullshitting, basically. Mm. Uh, and so you might say, well, that means there must be a God. Well, to me, that's not a very interesting argument. You know, there's, there's arguments that say... Everything has a cause. The universe must have a cause. It must mm. have a creator. These are just word games to me. They don't help or explain anything. They don't predict anything. They don't explain anything we didn't already know. So um, I see them as completely separate things. And I think it's very dangerous or at least very unhelpful to say there are bits that we don't understand. The universe, something must have come from nothing and therefore it must be a God. And even right. if you do invoke that, like, for example, the universe seems to be... It's an interesting point. This universe seems to be very finely tuned in the sense that if some of the fundamental parameters were slightly different, we wouldn't exist. Atoms wouldn't exist. Planets wouldn't exist. People mm. wouldn't exist. And that's an interesting point. And how do you address that? Um, but to go from that to say, well, that proves there's a God. And what's more, that God cares what we eat on Fridays and who we fall in love with, to me, is just ridiculous. Mm. And that's taking it just way, way too far. Yeah. Nah, I think that's definitely the general consensus a lot amongst a lot of scientists. I think Einstein never, like, when he used the terms like, oh, God doesn't play dice with the universe, I'm not sure if he was referring to the classical kind of, you know, Christian God that, for example, a lot of people, he was kind of generalizing to a deity which could take the form of, well, he, he can't, he doesn't have, you know, all the necessary data to be able to formulate what he thinks his deity should be. So he... He knows that there must be something else beyond description, so he's just associating that with a god, something that is higher than our level of thinking. But to actually attribute these things without any kind of um, previous premise is, is what, what, what do you think? Because I know, you know, you have a kind of idea of, of a theistic god and stuff. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's really interesting. Um... I mean, I guess probably me, more of a bias as I am a Christian, but. Um... I mean, obviously, I don't understand the level that you're at and you're way above um, trying to get to the real um, causality of it, I guess. But yeah. I don't know. I think there's so much to explain and so much to learn that it's, yeah, it definitely takes a lot to come to a That's conclusion. the thing, require a lifetime of like, mm -hmm. not even that. It's like a question of can we ever get the necessary information to be able to definitively say that we're wrong and you're, you know, you're... Right, I mean, we're right and you're wrong type thing. Yeah, Just... so scientists are sometimes accused of being very arrogant because because of that. And I would say it's actually the opposite, that a good scientist is someone who admits we don't know. We don't know stuff. There's a mm. lot we don't know. And that to me is more of a humble thing. And if you want to convince me of something, you have to show me evidence for it. Mm. Um, Einstein himself didn't believe in a personal God. He talked about Spinoza's God. Uh, he was Jewish too, of course, so yes. he's certainly a long way from... But... Um, yeah, I guess I, I see them as separate, and there are plenty, there are plenty of scientists who are religious, Christian, Jewish, whatever. Yeah. It's rare to find some that have very strong fundamental beliefs. But I know one who's an astronomer who studies the stars, who is a young Earth creationist, who actually thinks that the world is six thousand years old, mm -hmm. and at the same time studies the stars. 
I find that almost incomprehensible. Really? Um, he's a really nice guy. He's, he's French, in fact. I've, I've talked to him several times and we work together. I can't understand how his brain works, but he clearly has been able to compartmentalize. So on the one hand, that the universe was made 6,000 years ago, and on the other, that he's studying stars and their structures and their evolution when all of science, including him, agrees that stars are billions of years old. Yeah. I don't quite know how one does that, <laughs> but he's able to do it. <laughs> That's remarkable. Yeah. Maybe there's some sort of another difference in timeline going on, but there, I really don't know enough to be able to, to speak on it. But it is a really interesting concept, and we could talk for hours about like these ideas of like the origin of consciousness and, and yes. this, but... It's, it, is, it is, to be fair, it's ultimately why I got into understanding physics. I've been um, brought up um, in, in a Christian household um, and, and with this belief um, that, that, there's, uh, that there's a God. And um, to, to look into the physics of things which apply material descriptions to, to life and nature is really interesting for me. You know, it's, um, it's not like wavering my belief. I, I, I still have a faith and that's purely based off the fact that um, I have a lack. We don't know a lot of we just don't know a lot of things and to, to be able to pinpoint that origin of time when there's introduction of you know materialism and um uh pair production and uh, annihilation and then cosmological inflation we get in this accelerated expansion of the early universe and then this distribution of matter and maybe it's just my lack of knowledge right now but to rationalize that um is really difficult but i would i'd love to touch quickly on a bit of special relativity sure would you talk to us about the the twin paradox it's a very popular <laughs> paradox yeah, it's very famous um so the idea is that you have two twins one of whom stays behind on earth and the other jumps into a rocket goes off at high speed um, and according to special relativity if someone is moving at very high speed then their time appears to run slow according to us so let's pretend we're the ones staying at home on earth our twin gets in the rocket and goes off at high speed and we say, oh, their clock must be running slower. They must be younger than us. Then the twin turns around, the rocket changes direction, comes back to the earth and gets out of the rocket ship. And it does indeed turn out, if you did the experiment, that the twin would be slightly younger. They've done the experiment not with people, but with clocks. You get a clock, you fly it in a fast aeroplane, you bring it back again and you compare it to the clock that was left behind. And the clock that was moving fast has indeed gone slower. It hasn't ticked as many seconds. It's a small effect, but it's measurable. And that's part of special relativity. But that's not the paradox. The paradox is, is, is more than that. The paradox says, okay, now let's consider it the situation from the twin who went off traveling. So they get into their rocket ship and they're perfectly entitled because everything is relative in relativity to say, I'm in my rocket ship and the earth is moving away from me. I'm stationary in my rocket ship. The earth is moving away from me. Therefore, it's my twin on earth who should be younger when we were reunited mm. and it's hard the paradox is understanding where the asymmetry is because that tw that twin is wrong it's definitely true if you do the experiment and look at the theory that the twin who stays at home ages more than the twin who travels so the question then becomes where's the asymmetry and the asymmetry you can see it and when i teach this and i'll be teaching you next semester you're going to ask me a question <laughs> so i'm going to tell you the answer now but don't tell the class <laughs> There is an asymmetry, and the asymmetry is one of the twins turns around and comes back. So they accelerate, they change direction, and so they're no longer in what we call an inertial reference frame, which is to say a reference frame that isn't accelerating. And so the asymmetry comes because the twin who stayed at home just sat there, and the twin who traveled had to turn around. And it's, in the, it's when they turn around and come back that, that it's only because they turn around and come back that you can compare the clocks. If they kept going forever, then you'd never be able to compare the clocks. And yes. then they'd both be right. The twin who stayed at home would say, my twin traveling is younger than me. And the twin traveling would look at their twin back on earth, receding and going, oh, they're younger than me. And they'd both be right. But because the traveling twin turns around and comes back again so that they can compare, they're the one who's done the change of direction, the acceleration. So that's where the, ex that's where the, the paradox gets broken. So it's much more subtle than many people think, in fact. Wow. So... So let me get this right. So you have like, for example, I think a good example for a lot of people listening is when you're traveling, for example, if you're going along the highway, maybe going 110 kilometers an hour, when you're not accelerating, this is called an inertial frame of reference. 
um, that, that's the idea of inertial mean. When you're in a non-inertial frame of reference, you are accelerating, but you could be going along the freeway 110 kilometers. And if you had all the blinds down, it feels like you're not even moving. You're sitting there, you're playing, and it just feels like you're just, and that's, that's the effect of not, not accelerating. It's the same reason why we can be hurtling through space on earth and rotating and not feel any effects because we're moving at this in this kind of inertial frame of reference. Um, so what you're saying is the periods in which the actual person in the rocket has to decelerate or accelerate, they enter a non-inertial frame of reference and that is where this introduction of the time discrepancy actually happens. That's right, and they would notice. So it's a good analogy used. If you have the windows down, you can't see outside. You can't tell if you're going along at constant speed. So if they're in their rocket ship going through space at constant speed, or then a car going at constant speed, not changing direction, you can't tell. But as soon as you slow down and turn around, you can tell, you can feel it. Yeah. You've been in a train, right? You can be traveling along constant speed, but then suddenly the train slows down or goes around a corner. That's when you notice. And so you can tell that you're accelerating mm. without looking out the window. Yes. Yeah, so it's a really nice thought experiment. Thought experiments are great. They're, they're the foundation of relativity. Yeah, and general relativity, and well, special relativity and general relativity. Wait, is there a big difference between is special relativity simply this like time dilation, length contraction effect, and then general relativity is to do with like the warping of space and time as a consequence of matter? Or what's the actual, I've never really known the difference well, between those. Well, we, we will be talking about this briefly next semester, okay. but I'll give you a preview. So special relativity, the first one that Einstein did in 1905, deals with non-accelerating frames. Okay. So you're going along in a straight line and not accelerating. And in that case, you get the length contraction time dilation effects. The twin paradox is, a, is an example where someone is accelerating. Um, but in special relativity, you only normally consider frames of reference that are not accelerating, going along in a straight line. But then once he finished that, Einstein, of course, then wanted to consider acceleration. And he, 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 what he realized was he couldn't do that without also considering gravity. Because what he realized is that if you're... For example, in a rocket ship that's accelerating, it's got a, an engine that's pushing it faster and faster through space, you would feel yourself being pulled to the floor of the rocket ship. Yeah. Or if you're in an elevator on Earth and the elevator is accelerating upwards, you feel yourself pulled to the floor. And that effect is indistinguishable from gravity. So in other words, if I, if I put you in a rocket ship and accelerated you upwards at 9.8 meters per second squared, it would feel just like you were in your bedroom at home. And there's no experiment you could do that would tell the difference. This is what he called the equivalence principle. There's an equivalence between acceleration on the one hand and being in gravity on the other. And he realized that this meant there was an intimate connection between the two. And that's the reason why his general theory of relativity in fact turns out to be a theory of gravity. And so gravity is, as you said right at the beginning of this podcast, isn't really a force in general relativity. It's an effect that exists because either you're accelerating or more normally you're near some mass which is curving space-time and causing objects in space-time to, to move in certain ways. Wow. Well, I'd never considered like gravity was that equivalence with acceleration but it makes complete sense. Like yeah. through accelerating a direction you're also feeling this effect but then that's what we attribute to being gravity. So they're essentially just like these two interchangeable things. So an accelerating frame of reference is one that's under the effects of, oh, that's messing with my mind. It's, but. A, it's a fact. And he, what he called the happiest thought of his life, he was sitting in his patent office in Switzerland looking out the window and seeing some guys on the roof opposite. And they didn't fall off the roof, but he thought if you fell off the roof, then for those few seconds, for you, there would be no gravity. So if you're, for example, in a lift and the, the, the cable breaks and you're falling to earth in free fall, then for you, there's no gravity in the sense that if you take something out of your pocket, it will float beside you, right? So if you're in free fall, then for you, there is no gravity. And so how can gravity be a force if you can make it disappear just by changing to a different frame of reference? So these are very, very deep. And Einstein's genius was, was firstly realizing that this was very important. And then secondly, which took him several years, developing the mathematics to explain it and describe it. And the mathematics of general relativity is actually very complicated. That's the reason we don't teach it till fourth year, because you mm. need something called tenses to describe it properly. Mm. Um, so the mass of general relativity is horrendously complicated, but the basic idea is basically what I just told you. It's on a, Einstein was 
just incredible. I don't even know half of the maths or what he did, but I can just tell he is, it's just unbelievable. Like at that time of the knowledge of physics, for him to introduce such, I guess that was what's makes him so cool that, and probably an inspiration to a lot of people and even myself, that he was willing to think outside the box and go against the, the classical interpretations of, of a lot of things and just mm. like even um, uh, uh, general relativity has been used it actually predicts the existence of black holes general relativity I believe and through Einstein's predictions recently we talked about Kip Thorne and his um, uh, discovery of the or his help with the discovery of the um, gravitational waves and gravitational waves are a consequence of two colliding black holes and as they collide, they cause these ripples in space-time, which um, this laser interferometer, uh, which was set up called LIGO, LIGO, LIGO. yeah, LIGO. It, it's amazing how it works. I read something on it. What the actual when the when the waves come in, they cause contraction or um, or expansion um, in the light that's traveling inside the interferometer, such that they arrive at different points on the detector. And when that happens, you can tell that it's interacted with the gravitational wave. And that was confirmation of black holes existence, well, um, colliding black holes, and also general relativity. It was one of the most exciting moments in any physicist's life when that was discovered a few years ago, or first measured. And the the detection of these gravitational waves, these ripples in space-time, is probably the most difficult measurement that anyone's ever made because the change in the size of things as the gravitational wave went through this instrument was about one part in 10 to the 21, I think. So, so one in 10 to the 21, that's like a billion, 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 something like that, a lot. It's such a tiny effect, it's almost unbelievable and it took amazing technology, technology of optics and quantum physics to make these incredibly accurate measurements. So I think the detection of gravitational waves will go down as probably the most difficult measurement that any science has ever done. It's just way out there. Yeah, this, uh, the uncertainty is like so minimal. It's, as you said, it's like, I think I saw something, it's like within half of an atomic nuclei, the, the certainty, the precision to which we can document these changes. That is, that's, that, that is a triumph of science. It's a triumph of, of Einstein and the accuracy of his predictions because were they, I'm pretty sure even the actual results correlate directly to like that amount of, you can call it insignificant value, how small we're talking about this, this, um, this kind of uncertainty, but it, it corresponded exactly what Einstein's predictions were, you know? Yeah, it is really amazing, isn't it? And it took about a hundred years um, for, for it to happen which is a pretty short time, really, in the scheme of things. If you think that the work Einstein did in the early 20th century took about 100 years for them to get the instrument working. Uh, And Einstein himself would have just been blown away by it. Yeah, he never never got to see it happen, which is kind of sad. But also, again, it's a triumph that science is progressing beyond his, his theories. I don't know, there was a bit of a problem. I don't know how recent it was, but something about faster than light particles at detected at um was it the super collider yeah so there's like been a few reports over the years and they've always turned out not to be true they've turned out to be some sort of mistake or error yeah, in the measurements because data. it is a fundamental premise of relativity that no signal can travel faster than light yeah um we did a proof we did a well you did a proof for me or for our class deriving the speed of light from the movement of the electromagnetic slab which is the you know the um, electric and magnetic fields perpendicular to each other moving in in the three dimensional space. That's right. Yeah. And the speed of light comes out. Of the, it's the, really yeah. That was an amazing. That was Maxwell doing that in the in the eighteen hundreds, deriving the fact that electric and magnetic fields could produce these traveling waves that explained what light was. Before that, no one had any idea that light had anything to do with electricity or magnetism. So Maxwell was was a, also a genius. In fact, Einstein revered Maxwell. They weren't that far apart in time. Um, Maxwell's work was done in the late 1800s. Einstein was born, I think, in 1879. So he would have probably been a child at the time that Maxwell had done his work. He's looking up to him, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think one of the most amazing things that um, Professor Betting introduced me to, and it was probably, probably the thing that, like, 
I remember going home and telling my parents after you told me at a lecture because I was just... I think it was even just a conversation that we were having outside of the lecture room. Like I, was, I was a first-year student and I think I just spoke to you about it. And you said, or maybe it was to the whole lecture room, but it incorporated a special relativity and electromagnetism. And you said um, very accurately, and well, we described it really well, so I'm going to butcher this, but if you have a, a charged particle... A charged particle emits an, an electric field. Um, that's what it does. But it is um, moving moving charged particles that produce... Hang on, let me get this right. A moving charged particle produces an electric and a magnetic field that yeah. oscillate perpendicular to each other. And I remember you saying that relativity can be introduced such that if the particle is moving... If I'm an observer and I'm moving in an inertial frame of reference... Um, and I'm observing the particle, I couldn't be... It, it will look like the particle is actually moving away from me in space, and therefore it's a moving point charge, and there is an electric and, and magnetic field being produced. But in another frame of reference, the point charge is stationary, and therefore it's not moving and not producing an electric and magnetic field. So the actual production of these electric and magnetic fields are entirely dependent on your relativistic point of view, and therefore, it seems like they're simultaneously existing and non-existing and are only being introduced into like an observable reality when you make this distinguishing factor between your point of view. Can you give a better description of that, please? Yeah, so, so I guess what I was trying to say, which I think you captured pretty well, is that the electric and the magnetic fields are two aspects of the same thing. So if you have a charged particle like an electron sitting there, it produces an electric field around it. And if it's moving, it also produces a magnetic field. And so if you jump into a different frame of reference, for example, you imagine yourself moving along with the electron, then suddenly it's become stationary. And so in your frame of reference, there is no magnetic field. But someone who's standing on the ground watching you both go by says, yes, there is a magnetic field. So the electric and magnetic fields that you see depend on your reference frame. And that's the, that's the sense in which relativity is involved. And what Maxwell showed is that there are situations where electric and magnetic fields patterns can move through space together. And when they do so, they always move at this speed, which we call C, 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. And it doesn't matter how you do the calculation, that's always what you see. And that's Einstein's starting point for special relativity, because the fundamental postulate of special relativity is that the speed of light is the same no matter who measures it. And it comes from Maxwell's work. And so Einstein took the bold step of saying, well, I believe Maxwell above Newton. I'm going to take Maxwell's equations as fundamentally true. Therefore, Newton's laws must be wrong and have to be modified. And that's essentially what he did in 1905. That's a huge step to do because to dispute someone like Isaac Newton, who was essentially like, well, he was the the entire construction of the classical physics at that time would, would have been crazy. But that's, that's why Einstein, I think, was so great because like he just was willing to forego these previously established rules and even someone as significant as Einstein I would never feel like I could go against what Einstein said just because of his genius but, but he, yet he you did. can because you started by saying that in quantum mechanics Einstein got it wrong and he yeah, did right. so one of the good things about science and again coming back to science versus religion in science no one is above being wrong yeah. and so just because you've been right many times doesn't mean you, you're always right and just because you've got a theory that stood the test of time for years or even hundreds of years doesn't mean it'll be right forever Newton's thought laws were working fine till Einstein came along and modified them and someone will come along and modify Einstein's laws one day mm. that's the way science works so there's no authority in science you don't get your authority by standing there and saying I'm right you get your authority by agreeing with experiment yeah. and experiment is ultimately the arbiter one other thing I wanted to mention, I mean, we revere Einstein and Newton and all those people, but in some mm. sense, they got lucky in the sense that they were in the right place at the right time. They were. Too. So, so, for example, you know, Einstein could have been born years earlier or years later, and there would, he wouldn't have been able to discover relativity, either because it was too soon or because someone else already found it. And so and if he'd been born years earlier or later, I'm sure he would have done great things and discovered stuff, but it wouldn't have been what he discovered mm. so you have to be clever and you have to work incredibly hard and they did work really hard these people they locked themselves up in their rooms days weeks months working there's no shortcuts yeah. but they also were working on the right problem a problem that they could solve for example you could have gone back to newton and told him about a little bit about what we said today 
and then said, now you go work out the mathematics of general relativity. And he wouldn't have been able to do it because the maths hadn't been invented. Newton himself invented calculus to do what he did, right? right? But everything else was too far in the future. So in a sense, you can only do what is there for you. And you have to be a little bit lucky as a scientist in working on a problem that's soluble. And that applies to all of us. So getting off those grades, just back to the everyday people like us, Mm. you want to be working on problems when you're doing science that can be solved, that you can get data for, right? right? There's no point in trying to do something if the technology hasn't been invented yet. Yeah, like, like string theory or something like that. Like I, I almost, I don't feel sad for like theoretical physicists because they're incredible people. And as you said, we have people probably of equivalent intelligence to people like Einstein and, and Newton just simply without access to these for example, I've read something where to be able to confirm the ideas of string theory, or these ideas of like the compactification of dimensions, are, it's a big, really big concept. But you would need to essentially create a macroscopic black hole in order to run simula- simulations. And that requires like all these, like, it's, it's essentially impossible. So these people have these ideas that they can't be tested, which may put them in such a, you know, um, authoritative position as Einstein was in the scientific world. If their discovery was confirmed, but they simply don't have access to, to that thing and therefore they may live inconclusively as a theoretical physicist and never be respected for their intelligence like Einstein was with the praise and the glory that he gets. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And he also got a bit lucky in another sense that his general relativity made some predictions. One of them was that stars would be bent when the light went past the sun, which you can measure during a total eclipse. And just, he made his prediction they went off to measure it in a total eclipse, but they failed. In fact, World War One started. Um, and then he realized he made a mistake in his calculations and he corrected them and it was about a factor of two. And then Eddington, who was British, went off and measured this thing and found exactly the result that Einstein had predicted. But if the first expedition had been successful, then it wouldn't have found the answer Einstein predicted. And he would have then realized the mistake and corrected it. But, but he was shot to overnight fame by this measurement of the bending of light. I mean, it was on the front page of all the newspapers. Um, and so history would have been slightly different and Einstein probably would have got slightly less famous if the first expedition had succeeded. So that's an interesting quirk of fate too. That is, that's crazy. So we're, we're, we've just passed the hour and the thing is, uh, I feel like we, we could just speak for hours. So if, if you'll have us back, it'd be awesome to do a part two or something later on. Obviously, we're on uni break or I'm on uni break right now. You're having a break mm-hmm. also. Um, but it'd be awesome to may- maybe do a part two and then speak about some other stuff if, sure. if you'll let us back. I'd be happy to, but I'm sure there's <laughs> lots of other interesting people you want to talk to. Yes, there are, there are. So for those people listening, it's we have a great, uh, awesome, the University of Sydney is so gracious, you know, um, and, and we have amazing people like the professors here and, and even PhD students that we're hoping to, to interview and just develop this kind of um, broadened perspective. You know, even just speaking today has just been really interesting just to hear about these things. And, and you know, someone like Professor Benning has, has done what a lot of us hope to do in the science world and, you know, be you know, a really accomplished scientist in this field. And to be able to speak with other people also like yourself um, in different fields, well, I think it would just be awesome to develop that kind of um, knowledge and, and even relationships. You know, I, often we don't get to speak to our professors and build a friendship, but now we do, and it's awesome that we can do that. Now, last two questions. I'd love to just hear if you have any any kind of tips for un- upcoming physics students or something that you could have you know, told your younger self, which I, I suppose falls into the same category of tips for, for young upcoming physics students, or students in general in science or university even you could generalize to. Oh, gee, that's a hard question. I guess the main, I mean, there's obviously the, all the motherhood statements like make sure you work hard. Mm. I guess my main one would be to try to expand your interests, read widely if you can, because um, you never know when things turn up and make connections. So something that you read about biology or about politics or about history could turn out to be useful one day. So I think keep broad. You need to study hard in a specific area to get good at something, Mm. but it's also nice while you're doing that to try to keep your broad knowledge open. And you mentioned data science at the beginning of the podcast. That's a great example, right? Um, Learning how to program and use computers and uh, 
databases, etc., is a really important skill no matter what you end up doing. So yeah, keep it keep it broad is what I would say. Awesome, too good. Well, I think that'll wrap us up for today. So thank you for for listening. Obviously, a huge thank you to Professor Tim Betting um, of the University of Sydney and. Thanks to uh, my co-host, Aaron, for bringing up the Frisbee fact. Because yep. without your research, we wouldn't... Now I can tell people that my physics professor is an ultimate Frisbee competitor at the World Championship. Yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> for those facts. So thanks for listening in. Um, be sure to uh, leave a like and, and, and follow on whatever platform that you're, that you're listening to us on and be, be looking forward to um, the next few uh, episodes where we get a few more people on and expand our knowledge together. So um, I'm your host, Jake. Um, and, we'll, and we'll speak to you all soon.